Just a few words of introduction. We want to cover four topics in our series, and those who come to the series will have a syllabus um, at, the, at the end. The first two of the uh, lectures, possibly the third, will be in the, th the syllabus, and then uh, the last one will not be. And from this, we'll try to cover a lot of uh, the major principles of happiness in marriage. Now, if you'll look at the various practices around the world, and again, I apologize for um, the uh, feeling blue on the screen. <laughs> um, on my screen, it's a very beautiful pictures, but but you go into various places in the world and you find completely different at plans for courtship and marriage. I was just talking to some folk from India who had arranged marriages. Um, their parents arranged the uh, marriage and they think that any other kind of marriage is uh, a bad one. Now, it shouldn't be done. I had a resident. Here was a person probably 35 years old. She came and she rotated on my service. And because I was just about to give a series on courtship and marriage, I asked her how she had met her husband. And she didn't even want to tell me. But I said, well, it'll be interesting because I'm going to be going to give some lectures on this topic. And so she was willing to share with me that what had happened is her parents had answered an ad in a Hindu paper from the country she was from, and that the, her husband's parents had put the ad in the Hindu paper. And so out of the people who had replied to this ad for their son, they selected, the, uh, her, her, her parents were selected. So they went out, interviewed with the parents, the son was an engineer in the United States. Uh, they liked the parents. They met the daughter. They decided this was the proper person for their son. And so he flew back to the country she was from. Three days before they were married, they met for the first time. And three days later, they were married. And they have a very happy marriage. I asked her if this is what she planned to do for her, for her children, and she wasn't sure. This sounds very strange to our Western ears. However, this is the way it has been usually done throughout most history and in most places of the, the world. Uh, this is how Adam was married. This was an arranged marriage. Um, it was common in Christ's day. Christ's marriage himself is likened to a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Until 250 years ago, even in Western cultures, this is how marriage and courtship was conducted. Parents would choose the spouse for the children. 
The children had little involvement on who they were going to marry. They just depended on their parents to choose them a good spouse. But that changed with the Romantic period. You had the Romantic period of music. You had the Romantic period of literature, art, and courtship. And we've come down to the place where parents are not to even give any input to the children, not to be involved in the selection. We've gone from one extreme, the parents with little input from the children, to the children with little input from the parents. And generations now have grown up, been married with this type of, of pattern. But the Romantic period is coming to an end. There was a headline article in the Wall Street Journal. And this was uh, just a few years ago, and it was entitled, A Key to a Lasting Marriage. In fact, the reason I found this is I was on the way, passing through the airport, on the way to give a lecture on courtship and marriage, a series something like this. And I saw the key to a lasting marriage, combat. It made the following points. There's a growing body of sociological and psychological literature that suggests there's no such thing as a compatible couple. All couples tend to argue about the same things. Most disagreements never are resolved. Um, spouses are, are advised to honor discord. They shouldn't even think this was a problem. Good homes are said to be discordant homes. I'm not making this up. This is, uh, um, they were to give up on agreement and just simply agree to disagree. And then they made some practical suggestions, such as including weekly fights. But if fighting saves marriage, why just limit it to weekly? <laughs> Instruction in fighting was recommended for each spouse. Uh, it was a serious article presenting some of the biggest names in, in marriage counseling today. It did have some practical counsel as well, but just as the romantic period of art and music came to an end, the romantic period of courtship in marriage seems to have come to an end. We are now in the age of despair. People just live together, don't even bother with marriage. But when the experts conclude that the key to a lasting marriage is fighting, they prove the truth of Isaiah's observation, the way of peace they know not. Unless the Lord builds your house, you will labor in vain to build it. I remember making a decision that some of you have made. Some of you are in the process of deciding whether you want to make it or not. When I was determining what course I was going to be taking in, in my own personal dating and who I would, I would marry. And I made the decision that's the best decision I ever made, and that is I will follow God's principles of courtship and marriage and only marry someone that God would approve. And I regret a lot of decisions I've made in my life, but that's one decision that I have no regrets for. And that's why I want to share with you the principles that go into making a happy home. Our theme is 
cross. Christians' resources on spouse selection. And I'm excited to share this with you because I know the joy that comes as a result of uh, following these principles. It's a Bible and Spirit of Prophecy-based seminar. There's a theme in Scripture on courtship and marriage and on homes. Now, I'm going to be using current sociological and psychological literature, but I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not pointing to these as authorities. The Bible is the authority. But the latest in the research simply illustrates the truth that the Bible made clear in its principles. God's Word is the authority for successful, happy dating, resulting in successful, happy marriage. And research merely documents the truth of the Word of God. This is a big topic. I can only introduce it. If I was going to give you a talk on internal medicine or dermatology or physical medicine or one of the areas, you couldn't do that in four lectures and, and, and cover the entire topic. All we can give you is key principles. We want to go over how you can predict the future, how you can know whether a person that you're thinking of marrying um, is likely in 20 years to make a good spouse or not. There's some very powerful predictors. God gives four ways to predict the future. We want to look at those in one of our topics. I can't cover the specifics, and every specific situation is different. But we can give these general principles, which I believe that um, will be helpful to you. Now, the principles of dating, courtship, and marriage are universal. However, the applications may be different from person to person. And each situation has a lot of variables that need to be considered. I have learned that in a group this size, there's going to be a lot of different problems that they face. There's going to be um, some here that have already gone through an experience that has left you with confusion or perhaps guilt. Some may be in a, feel that they're in a trapped relationship. There may be someone here who's struggling with loneliness. There may be someone who is feeling they're compelled to accept a non-Christian life's partner because there's nobody else in town. There are sensitive, very close, emotional, important decisions. And I want to be sensitive to those. Courtship and marriage affects our deepest and strongest um, thoughts and feelings. And so these are, these are very difficult situations. There may be someone here who's secretly struggling with either thoughts or habits or practices that are morally impure. And I want you to know that God's Word gives the solutions to escape 
from the bondage of moral impurity. The Bible can bring peace and key to victory in every area. Years ago, the king of Israel gave the secret to dating and happy marriages. Believe in the Lord your God, he said. Believe his, pro- and you will uh, be established. Believe his prophets, and you will prosper. This is a formula to prosper not only in dating, but in every area of our lives. The books of Genesis and Judges reveal that those, when a, when a church, when a nation abandoned God's principles of courtship and marriage, it ended up destroying the nation. Ezra and Nehemiah reveal that when a nation or a church follows God's principles of courtship and marriage, it results in revival and reformation. We want to carefully examine God's instruction on how to have a happy home. And I'm going to assure you that we're not going to be looking at how to fight, but neither are we going to have guidance from the romanticists. We're going to let the Bible guide us. We'll look to God. And so if we're going to look to God, let's start right there and ask him to bless us as we study together courtship and marriage. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for every young person here that um, has come to this class to learn your, your will in order for them to do your will. We know your will is found in the Bible. And I pray that as we study the Bible, as we study the spirit of prophecy, you will fill us with truth. And may each person here learn the joy that comes, learn the, commit, the satisfaction that comes from committing themselves to the Lord and waiting patiently on you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Every want, the book Education says, every desire that God has implanted, he provides to satisfy. Thirst makes water so satisfying. Hunger prepares us to better enjoy food. And loneliness prepares us to better appreciate friendship and companionship. I wonder what went through Adam's mind as he watched God bring him the different animals as God created them. He noticed that each time God was creating an animal, it was looking more and more like him. And then God created a gorilla. And I wonder if as God was making the first gorilla... Adam said, I wonder if that one is for me. But he didn't run ahead of the Lord. He waited for God to finish making the partner for him. And God reserved it as a surprise. God didn't give it to him immediately. He he waited till Adam felt the need for a partner, and then he let Adam learn to trust that he was going to provide for every need that he created Adam to have. God provides not just for Adam. It says 
he sets the solitary in families. Can you read this uh, despite the problem with the color? Jesus told his disciples that those who had left family for his sake, those who had been driven out, their parents all had, had to send them away, would receive, can you read it with me? An hundredfold now in this time, brothers and sisters and mothers and children. A good wife is such a treasure that God wants to give it to, to us himself. He, Solomon says, you may inherit all you own from your parents, but a sensible wife is a gift from the Lord. One of the blessings of medical school days was I was with a group of, of uh, young people, and for four weeks we carefully studied God's principles of courtship in marriage. And I was leading out in a study of what the Bible, what the spirit of prophecy said. We called it the treasures of the home. The first one was on the wife. The second one was on the husband. The third one was on the responsibilities of children. And the last one was called romantic fever, a contagious disease of the heart. Well, this one particular participant had been to all three and wanted to be to the last one. And I didn't actually even know this story until I came back to give this years later as uh, uh, probably about 20 years later after I'd graduated from Loma Linda. And so this particular person told me the story that she had gone up to San Francisco for a conference. She was a student, but got a plane ride to get back in time for the Friday evening for the last of the series, because she hadn't wanted to miss it. And I'm glad she, she did. The series had long-term results. This person that came back so that she would not miss the last one actually turns out to be my wife, Sherry. And, uh, but she never told me that story until, until uh, many, many years later when I was giving this again. I was... I was talking to a young person in Australia. He wanted to know, I was giving us this series actually there. He wanted to know how he could have a good wife. And I said, what he should do is study the principles, organize a seminar on courtship and marriage. And uh, that's how I had found my wife. <laughs> uh, these principles of God's word are wonderful. And marriages built on God's word are a a real blessing. If I get to heaven, it will be because uh, the wife I married, her influence in my life, and she's going to have a star uh, in her crown for her husband. I, I now see how the person you marry will have a huge impact on whether you go to heaven or not. Now, in Deuteronomy, it says, You shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Deuteronomy 7.14, You shall be blessed above all peoples. But marriage blessings are not automatic. Satan plans to take the blessing of God and turn it into a curse. And if you look at the statistics, they're dismal. I was writing out to give a series 
uh, on courtship and marriage, and in the province of God, my seatmate was the leading marriage counselor in the country of Canada. And this person told me that in Canada, the latest statistics were 72% of people who were married got divorced in Canada. One time, Jesus was asked a question about marriage and about divorce. And his answer was so shocking that the disciples said, if this is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Don't think that you can disregard God's instruction during courtship. Do as you please and have God's blessing on your marriage. Deuteronomy 29, 19 says this, So it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. You can't have peace and follow the dictates of your heart. Never forget, the way of the transgressor is hard. He may give you your request, but send leanness to your soul. In the United States, five million men and women will make a marriage vow to each other this year if the present statistics hold true. Based on the present trends, the National Institute, uh, the National Center for Health projects that 43% of first-time marriages will end in divorce. Now, every marriage has, uh, if a person marries the first time, that's their best, pot, their best chance of staying married for the rest of their lives. Each, each additional marriage has less chance of the marriage lasting. The medium length of time for instituting a divorce is 6.2 years. And we all know that just because a, a marriage doesn't end in divorce doesn't mean that it continues as a happy marriage. For many people, marriage is like poorly fitting shoes, except you just can't kick the shoes off at the end of the day. Ellen White wrote in a thoughtful article on marriage in the Review and Herald, um, she said, lovers should consider an important question. The path of married life may appear beautiful and full of happiness, but why may you not be disappointed as thousands of others have been? What makes you different? What makes your experience different than others? The sentence before this question was the statement, marriage in the majority of cases is a most, and then she says, galling yoke. But people who go to the marriage altar, are they trying to be unhappy? Are they going there because they want to be miserable? No, they're going because they think they will be happy. Now, why do some marriages prove to be happy and others not? Is it just uh, chance or fate, the will of Allah? He's predestined some people to be happy, others to be unhappy? No. The decisions we make determine whether we're going to be happy or not. We determine the outcome. Ellen White says, you can make 
or destroy your own happiness, you can make your position happy or unbearable. You see, everybody has given a happiness kit. And we construct it ourselves. You construct your happiness. And how do we do this? The course you pursue will create happiness or misery for yourself. Our destination is determined by the road we take. It matters whether you go 80 west or whether you go 80 east. I remember we were on the way to the... Uh, a couple years ago, maybe it was three years ago, to General Youth Conference in Baltimore. And the day we left, or the day before we left, anyway, just right in that time, a GPS unit came. And, and my wife and I, for the first time, used a GPS. My wife thought it was maybe just a toy but she was indulgent of her husband. This was Christmas, and so this was okay to have a family Christmas gift. But by the time we got to Baltimore, Maryland, and drove right to the hotel, both my wife and I knew that this was not something that was just nice. This was indispensable. Uh, just to have a way, if we turned the wrong way, it'd say, stop, you know, turn around, or change, or... No matter where you were, you heard a word behind you saying or in front of you saying, this is the way, drive in it, when we turn to the right or to the left. And I thought, in life, wouldn't you like a GPS from heaven? For sure. Um, in Courtship and Marriage, Adventist homepage 70, most people's GPS is Feeling, the prevailing sentiment, feeling is to guide. If it feels good, do it. Well, she loves him, so she ought to marry him. He loves her, so he ought to marry her. But feeling is not a very reliable GPS. Adventist to home, page 43, gives us a better GPS signal. He will not want to choose for himself, that is, a Christian but will feel that God must choose for him. There's a human tendency to consider the grass greener on the other side of the fence. The single, you know what they want? To be married. The married, you know what they want? <laughs> to be single. If you are single, take a good hard look at the value of being single. As surprising as it sounds, this is the first step to a happy marriage, is to be happily single. The choice you make as a single person determines the happiness you will experience as a married person. If you are single, maximize the blessings and opportunities that being single provides for you. God's first call to everyone is an unmarried ministry. Now, you weren't born married. The first and most important part of your life is single, for everybody. Why is that? Because there are lessons that you can't learn married that you must learn before you're ready for marriage. 
I read a report that about 90 million people in the United States will be single for more than half of their lives. During this time, we're learning essential future home building skills. Jesus asked the question, if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, that is your parents' home, who will give you that which is your own? If you are single, seriously consider the question. Has God called me to continued unmarried ministry? Singleness is not simply a holding tank for future marrieds. Since marriage is God's plan for most, it's easy to overlook, dismiss, despise God's special calling for the single person. But before beginning courtship, we need to adequately consider this. Honestly, ask yourself this question. This is very important. Do I need time for further maturation? Do I need further development of important character qualities for future home happiness? Like Adam, is God giving me opportunity to realize my need for a life's partner? There is a difference between a sense of desire and a need. Ask yourself, is God giving me opportunity to trust Him, to follow His principles and trust Him to bring me the right life's partner? As a rule, the value of singleness is underestimated. There's a fellow by the name of Satoshi Kanazawa who did research in New Zealand. He's now at the London School of Economics. He's a psychologist there. And he researched the 280 top scientists in the world. And here's what he discovered. He says, scientists rather quickly desist from their careers after their marriage, while unmarried scientists continue to make great scientific contributions later in their lives. This pattern is true across the board, he found, whether it was music, science, art, literature. By the way, he says of himself, he says, I won't be making any major scientific breakthroughs now that I'm in my 30s and I'm married. Very effective men have been called either to single ministries or later ministries. Of course, what's true of men is equally true for women. Most of us today would recognize the names Ralph Nader, Condoleezza Wright, Rice, Supreme Court Justice David Souter, now retiring. All of these were our single people. Singleness, you see, isn't harmful. It's uh, not something to be ashamed of. It's not some contagious, terrible disease. Singleness, in fact, is called by Paul a special gift. If you are single, consider yourself singularly gifted. It doesn't stand in the way of anything. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 and 8, I wish that all men were even as I myself. Each one has his own gift from God. But I say to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Now, 
Would Daniel have chosen God's plan for his life to be captured, to be castrated, to be unable to be married, have children, no grandchildren, no family, exiled from his home, cut off from his family? Would he have chosen that? No. But God chose that for him, and God made this single person who has mutilated he made him one of the great blessings for people throughout time. The possibility of unmarried ministry should be considered by those with life-threatening, debilitating illness or serious mental illness. Ellen White wrote to her granddaughter, Mabel. She said to Mabel, she says, I want you to listen to what I'm going to say to you. Now, why do you do people say, please listen up? Because they're apt to miss this, right? So a prophet says, Mabel, I want you to listen to what you don't want to hear, basically. You must on no accounts entertain thoughts of marriage. Such a thing must not be thought of until you have gained a decided victory over the dangers that threaten your physical health. Mabel did listen to counsel. And uh, it'll be difficult for you to see the uh, picture as the biggest picture that I could give of, uh, find of her. Um, she and her husband in 1913 on the right side. And then uh, herself in her golden years, she actually lived 96 years. God's advice was good. Now, it's obvious the call to further unmarried ministry should also be considered by those who are called to dangerous travel, times of great social upheaval, war, insecurity. Paul's counsel in times of emergency because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. Now, in medicine, we have what are called relative and absolute contraindications. A relative contraindication is... Um, you can use this medicine, but you have to be cautious, and if you don't have to use the medicine, don't use it. But an absolute contraindication means that under these circumstances, never, never, never touch this medicine. Paul's advice here is relative. It's not absolute because he says quickly, if you do marry, you have not sinned. There are, however, four situations in which marriage is absolutely contraindicated under any and all circumstances. The first is if the person that you're dating is not a believer. The Bible's injunction is absolutely clear. Neither shalt thou make marriage with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. The curse of heaven followed these forbidden relationships. Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom, the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, all was listed, all were listed as a result of forbidden marriages. The verse answers the question to what we should do if our children ask us to, to give them permission to marry somebody who is not a believer. We can't in any circumstance give them permission. They may do it, but it should be um, clearly unequivocal 
that they do not have their parents' permission. The New Testament is equally clear. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14, we are to marry only in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7.39. The true Christian, Adventist home, feels that it would be better to remain unmarried than to leak his interest for life with one who chooses the world rather than Jesus and who would lead away from the cross of Christ. The second absolute contraindication is if our parents are not in favor of the union. Adventist Home 75, should the child, notwithstanding the counsel and entreaties of his parents, persist in following his own course? I answer decidedly no, not if he never marries. The fifth commandment forbids such a course. Third contraindication, it would be far better not to marry at all, letters to young lovers, than to be unfortunately married. And then... The last absolute contraindication is if the couples are not adaptable. Letters to young lovers again. Those who are not willing to adapt themselves to each other's dispositions so as to avoid unpleasant differences and contentions, read it with me, should not take the, the step. So if you can't adapt yourself to the person that you're planning on marrying, stop the plans. Singleness is not a bad thing. Christ's favorite home to visit was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These were unmarried siblings, close friends with each other and with Jesus. This is a sample of what God desires for brothers and sisters, a place that he likes to come to. The children of Israel murmured at God's leading through the wilderness. We must not follow their example. Don't murmur and complain if you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Don't be in panic if you're not dating. One of the things that attracted me to Sherry is she's the first girl that I ever met that wasn't planning on getting married. We can never receive God's best until we leave that decision to Him. I was looking for somebody who was perfectly content to be single because if they're not content with what they are in the situation they're in, they won't be content in any other situation. Contentment has to do with you. It doesn't have to do with circumstances. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Are you perfectly content to remain single for as long as this is God's will for you? If you are single, will you make this commitment? Will you make a solemn and lasting commitment to never date or marry a non-Christian? It is true through the gospel, God can overrule our poor decisions. But you have to ask yourself a basic question. Do you want God to be ruler in your life or merely overruler in your mistakes of life? Do you want God to rule to prevent the mistakes or do you want to have to suffer through the disciplines and consequences as God overrules the choices we make? I was talking to a very famous Adventist evangelist, pastor. 
And he told me this. He said, Phil, he says, in all my experience, seeing thousands of people, and he, there probably is an exception to this, but he said he had never seen a time if a, if a Seventh-day Adventist Christian married a non-Seventh-day Adventist Christian and the non-Seventh-day Adventist Christian became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, that the spouse that had been an Adventist and married outside the faith never seen a time where that spouse wasn't the weaker Christian of the two and held back the other one even as the other one who became maybe converted and committed uh, going forward. That spouse was always a, uh, a drag. The first step for marriage is to maximize the opportunities of being single. The second step to preparing for marriage is to recognize that God has a time and a place for it. Psalm 139.16, in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God has a time in his book for every activity of your life. It's all written out in advance. It's all organized. To everything there is a season, a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to love, and a time to hate. And ladies and gentlemen, the time to hate is not after you're married. <laughs> There's a special beauty when God's timing is followed. A baby is beautiful. But if the baby never grows up through arrested development, it no longer is beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. First the blade, then the ear, then the head, then after that the full grain in the head. Volume 6, page 24. It is the very essence of all right faith to do what? The right thing at the right time. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing at the wrong time. It is the right thing at the right time that makes it the right thing. Jesus recognized the importance of proper timing. He came in the fullness of the time. He said, mine hour is not yet come. And then when it was come, he said, Father, the hour is come. He understood timing and he wants us too. Are you willing, like Jesus, to accept God making your schedule, to find out what his schedule for your life is? Or do you want to be the one in charge of making your own schedule? Will you save with David? My times are in your hands. Are you seeking to know God's schedule for your life? Do you want to be true? It, want it to be true of you as it was to the Romans that you know the time, Paul says. Man's greatest danger is to impatiently run ahead of the Lord. The Bible is filled with accounts of people who just wouldn't wait for the Lord. They just ran on ahead. Now, as I was growing up, everyone around me was dating. I wanted to please the Lord. I didn't know some of the things that I'll be sharing with you. But whether we know them or not, whether I understand gravity or not, guess what? Gravity still works. And I never had any success 
or happiness going ahead of God's plans. You don't help the roses out by blooming them. And as God revealed these principles to me, each opportunity, each principle, conversion takes place at the point of a test. God would give the principle and then I would have an opportunity to decide, am I going to do it God's way or am I going to do it my way? Are you willing to wait for his timing? It's not a small decision in courtship and marriage. Notice Adventist homepage 80. Immature marriages are productive of, what does it say? A vast amount, that's right, of the evils that exist today. What are a vast amount? Why are there a vast amount of the evils? Premature courtship. There are things in life that can't be rushed. Pregnancy development can't be rushed. It takes nine months of gestation whether you like it or not. Anything less is premature. There's no pill to speed the process to one to two months. And the more premature the birth, what's the, what happens? The more complication in the child. You can have premature buds, and then there's a freeze, and then you have less fruit. And just as there are premature births, there are premature courtships and marriages. Often the very first point that Ellen White would make to somebody that was seeking her counsel would be, well, here's a letter she wrote to John. Dear John, this is Ellen White's Dear John letter. I am sorry that you have entangled yourself in any courtship with Elizabeth. In the first place, your anxiety upon this question is, what's that word? Premature. It's premature. There are dangers in premature courtships. First, the courtship that you have is exclusive and demanding. And if you're in an exclusive and demanding relationship prematurely, other friendships won't form because they'll be excluded. You won't have time. You won't have interest. And this may close the door for future usefulness. There may be people that if you knew now, in the future, would open up doors for you, but you don't know them, and those doors will never open up. Jobs and opportunities. The life's partner, who would be God's choice for you, might take a look and see that you're in a relationship and give you no more further thought. That's it. And then, I don't know about you, but... When I go shopping, oftentimes, let's say it's a book that I want to buy, I'll, uh, I'll find one that has the shrink wrap take off, take, taken off. But when I go to buy the book, guess which book I buy? The one that's still a shrink wrapped. And if the shrink wrap is taken off, a person may take a look at you and go purchase a shrink wrapped package. Of course, uh, in a premature dating uh, situation, you may have a breakup. And then you have often blame, guilt, anger, regret. Couples, once that were the closest friends, become bitter enemies. One of the reasons I didn't date in college is I didn't want to lose my friends. 
But of course, a third possibility is it may lead to marriage. This is no surprise. But the risk of unhappy marriage is increased. In the PEAR project, which is a long-term study of courtship and, and marriage, of 168 um, people, uh, newlyweds in 1981, by 1994, the researchers were able to conclude with certainty an interesting finding. The earlier the couple had started dating, the greater risk of unhappy marriage and divorce. Solomon put it this way, Stir not up, nor awake my love, till he please. And Solomon repeated this three times in the book of Song of Solomon. The young affections, Ellen White says, should be restrained until the period arrives when sufficient age and experience make it honorable and safe to unfetter them. Those who will not be restrained will be in danger of dragging out an unhappy existence. This isn't just an unhappy life, but an unhappy existence. Existence. Now notice the word is restrained. Usually this requires outside restraint. Parents, um, governments, teachers, authorities. God wants us to have happiness. There is happiness available. But to have it, we have to give attention to age and experience. And there's the almost insurmountable problem. The too young and the too inexperienced, almost universally, it's just a hallmark of young and inexperienced. They think they're what? Old enough, experienced enough. Helen White wrote uh, a very insightful letter to an orphan boy. She says this, Your danger is increased by the spirit of independence and self-confidence, connected as, of course, it must be with inexperience. You feel that it is time for you to think and act for yourself. This fellow was 16 years old. I'm a young man and no longer a child. Is that true? 16? Yes. I am capable of discriminating between right and wrong. I have rights. I will stand for them. I am capable of forming my own plans of actions. Now, the parents that he had were not even his parents. They were his, uh, or foster parents. <laughs> this boy wasn't ready, but he thought he was. What is sufficient age? There's a minimum age standpoint, uh, standard for obtaining a learner's permit to drive. In Kansas, it was 14 years old. In Georgia, to obtain a full driver's license, you had to be at least 17. Nationally, the minimum age to vote is what? 18. What is the minimum age standpoint standard to get a heavenly courtship dating permit? <laughs> to understand the Bible's minimum age, we need to understand the biblical life periods. Now, the Bible divides the life into four distinct periods. Infancy is 1 to 5, or 0 to 5. Weaning was to take place, interestingly enough, by the age of five. And often there was a special celebration. Isaac was weaned at the age of five, and they had a special celebration for this. I suppose it would be the not coming out, but coming off celebration, right? Coming off weaning. And uh, Isaac 
Samuel also had special celebration. From the age of 5 to 20 is the biblical period of childhood and youth. And then it became customary to split the 5 to 20 in half at the age of 12 and allow a child that was 12 or older to participate in temple services. With the exception of Caleb and Joshua, those over 20, that is the adults, died in the wilderness. While those not yet adults, those under 20, entered the land of Canaan. Those over 20 were also required to give a temple uh, tax, 50 shekels, to support the sanctuary every year. They had this because they were considered financially secure, independent by that time. It was not until they were 20 years old that they were to be in the army. David was under 20 when he killed Goliath. At that time, he was called a lad by King Saul. He had not been considered old enough to be drafted into the army. The age of adulthood was 20 years old to 60. At 20, you're financially independent and you're physically developed. Um, they were men. They're old enough to join the army. They're old enough to get married. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be old enough to fight to be old enough to get married. They were old enough to be independent, physically mature. The expression men of Israel refers to those who are over 20. They had sufficient life's experiences at 20. They were financially ready, age 20. They're men now. Notice uh, Numbers 1, 3, 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. From 20 years old upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel... Thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. So you counted the men. Uh, verse 18, they declared their pedigrees after their families by the house of their fathers according to the number of the names from 20 years old and upward by their poles. And then over 60 years of age is old age. So I'm about uh, six months from old age. <laughs> Except I'm still in my late 20s, 2039. Now, how old is the minimum age for obtaining a heavenly dating courtship permit? For most individuals, though not for all, the minimum age recommended is 20. Notice Ellen White says, A youth not out of his teens is a poor judge of the fitness of a person as young as himself to be his companion for life. Now, the Bible-suggested minimum age is demonstrated in the literature. An eight-year longitudinal study of married 14 and 15-year-olds was done in Baldwin County, Alabama. 14 and 15-year-olds married. This is a more, mostly rural county of about 200,000 people. This was published in the American Family Journal. It revealed a divorce rate of 66% in the eight years of the study. The average marriage lasted about 3.8 years. The shortest marriage lasted four months. Already mentioned is the prospective pair study that showed a direct correlation between the age of dating and the risk of divorce. Mike McManus, the president of Marriage Savers and a contemporary authority on marriage, he said this. 
Those who marry as teenagers have a divorce rate about double those who married in their 20s. There is a curve of success. Just just picking age as a factor, those who marry in the mid to late 20s or early 30s seem to have the most enduring marriages. Maturity is understanding the long-term consequences of momentary decisions. And youth youth gives a deadly combination of risk-taking and inexperience. Increased motor vehicle accidents and injuries, young people. Insurance, more expensive, young people. And most rental car companies will not rent a car to somebody under 25, or if they do, they charge uh, an extra premium. Why? Because age makes a difference. Are you at least 20 years old? If you're not, it doesn't matter if society ignores it, encourages it. It doesn't matter if media flaunts it. You're not ready to consider dating and courtship. Just put it out of your mind. There are exceptions to the rule of thumb uh, under 20, but the exceptions are almost always females, and the exceptions include arranged marriages. Adam was only a few hours old, but it was not before Adam had received an education on the care of a garden. He had a home to prepare for his wife. He had named the animals, um, and it was an arranged marriage with limited options. If you truly are the exception, you'll pay particular attention to the material on counsel. Inspired counsel is balanced. In our dealings with students, age and character must be taken into account. We cannot treat the young and the old just alike. In dating and courtship, age and character matters. One size does not fit all. Of course, some much older than 20 are unfit to be married. Ellen White said this. She said, uh, Elizabeth will not be as much prepared by cultivated manners and useful knowledge to marry at 25 as some girls would be at 18. What is sufficient experience? Proverbs says, prepare thy work without and make it fit for thyself in the field and afterwards build thy house. In other words, have a way to take care of financially support a home before getting married. Um, Finish your basic education, college, business school, trade school. Make sure that you can support a home before you start one. Those whose primary objective in going to college is is for it to be an expensive dating service have misunderstood the highest purpose of education. Ellen White says, bear in mind that the school is not a place to form attachments for courting or entering into marriage relations. Why is this important? In order, she says, to act your part in the service of God, you must go forth with the advantages of as thorough and intellectual training as possible. Under, she adds this, under the untimely excitement of courtship and marriage, many students fail to reach that height of mental development which they might otherwise have attained. Ellen White wrote, she was sponsoring her 18-year-old granddaughter's college. She said to her, in order to obtain the full benefits of the educational uh, advantages offered you, you must keep yourself free from attachments. And so, is your basic education completed? By basic education, 
we're talking about vocational speaking uh, training. If your basic training is not completed and you're in your 20s, other questions need to be answered. Who's paying for your education? The borrower is servant to the lender. You should have a job or a business that can fully sustain a, a family. This is true of the person, if it's a woman or a man. Uh, don't marry somebody who couldn't sustain a family, regardless whether it's uh, a wife you're wanting to marry or a husband that you're thinking of marrying. Solomon described a virtuous woman as one who considers a field and buys it from her profits. She plants a vineyard. This was learned before she was married. Rebecca, Rachel, all knew how to run homes before God gave them homes of their own. And so we ask, can you financially support a family? If your answer is no, it's premature to consider marriage. I was... uh, talking to my son, Philip, when he was 11 years old. And he says, you know, Dad, our family's too strict. We have too many rules. Um, uh, None of the other, my friends, they don't come from families that are strict. Of course, their friends were probably saying the same thing to their parents, but regardless. Nobody else is as as strict as uh, you are. So I, I said to him, I said, Philip, And he had just studied in his homeschool, he had just studied a section on Cambodia, and he knew there were a lot of landmines. Suppose that you had the opportunity to choose which parent you were going to come, which family you were going to come from in Cambodia. One family says to you, Philip, we just love you so much, we just want you to go out, and we want you to uh, uh, go anywhere you want, do anything you want, and, and we just love you. So you go out and you explore the world, and... And, of course, you get step on a mine, you blow up, and you're maimed for the rest of your life. Or another family says, Philip, we love you so much, here's a map. It's a very narrow place here. If you follow the map, as long as you stay in here, the mines have been cured, cleared. It's narrow, but it's safe. Now, which family do you want to come from? And, you know, God... It's true that it's a narrow way, but there are a lot of minds in the world. And all God is doing by the narrow way is protecting us from paths that are dangerous, paths we don't want to be on. God has cleared the minds from the paths that he tells us to walk in. This is the way, walk ye in it. Um, I, I remember dating a uh, girl and thinking I should marry her. Uh, my parents didn't approve, and I had to make a decision. Am I going to follow my heart, or am I going to follow my parents' advice? And I'm very grateful that, that I listened to the voice of God through my parents, because this girl ultimately lost her mind. I would have been divorced, been miserable, unhappy, completely different. I wouldn't be talking to you this, this, this morning, that's for sure. Do you desire God's guidance in your life and say, Thou art the guide of my youth? Will you make David's prayer your own? Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in the plain path because of mine enemies. 
Are you willing to wait on the Lord? Be of good courage so he can strengthen your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to talk about preparation. Now bless us as we take the next steps in our study. I pray that you'll give us insights. And may young people here, may there be happy homes and avoidance of sorrow as a result of your word. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.